What's up, Triwizard Champions? Welcome to the Jesus Movies Podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow Victor Crumb fanboy, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what that might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today we're talking about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and Graham, my one question for you is, did you put your name in that goblet? If only I could. I don't think I have the magical proficiency to be able to pull off such an impressive age spell. I did not put my name in the Goblet of Fire, but man, am I pumped to be discussing HP4 with you today. Yeah, where do you think it falls in your rankings? And maybe go books and then movies, like, let's separate. Um, I think I would put Goblet of Fire top four in terms of books for me, and probably top three in terms of movies you know obviously it's the halfway point in the book series and if we're looking at the broad character arc of harry potter this is an incredible beat here because we get the return of voldemort we get harry uh being faced with death in, in a very real and challenging way and things start to change from here on we get the final scene with harry ron and hermione at the end of hogwarts and hermione says this is going to change everything, isn't it? And certainly it does. It's a major inflection point for the series. And so for me, it's definitely a top movie. What about for you? Yeah, it's up there. I feel like it's the Revenge of the Sith of the series. And I love Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I was like stunned and chilled. And it was sort of like a now what when I first watched it. Mm-hmm. The scene where Voldemort returns in the graveyard is an all-time Harry Potter scene. Uh, we get to see Ray Fiends for the first time really personify Voldemort that where he's like running his fingers through his head it's a little bit moist and he he breathes in for the first time it is it is tense and chilling we are a movie podcast we're here to talk about Goblet of Fire the movie with that said let's talk a little bit about adaptation how much do we miss Ludo Bagman and Sirius Black in this movie are there other definitely those two characters play a pretty essential role they're not really developed at all I always could use more Moody. Man, I love Moody. Brendan Gleeson, he plays him, does an excellent job in the film. But there you know, are obviously some additions with it, film being a, vid- a, a visual medium that help us cue on to the fact that it's Barty Crouch Jr., it's not Moody. So we've got the licking thing, the constant references to Polyjuice Potion, the little box in Moody's office that keeps rattling whenever Harry goes in there. And so there's a little bit more of a giveaway, whereas I would say in the books, the Barty Crouch Jr. reveal is a lot more surprising and substantial because you can go back and pick the clues, but it's not as visually cued as it is in the film. I think I could have used a little bit more time in the maze. But yeah, I would say in terms of the Voldemort returning scene and the fear, uh, and you obviously love soundtracks, the score of that makes makes that moment really come alive for me. Graham, I have to say, and we talked about this a little bit, but it's been a long season of falling out of love with different movies and TV shows and musicians. A lot of entertainment that used to excite me so much, in my opinion, has either gotten worse or I've lost my affection for it, maybe because of a changed worldview, maybe because of who the creators have become in the public sector. I, I don't know. It could be a lot of different factors, but diving into Harry Potter for this Goblet of Fire episode has rekindled my love for storytelling and for entertainment. It's been such a provision from God. I read the entire book, Goblet of Fire, just for this podcast. I've been listening to the Ringer, Binge Mode, Harry Potter. They do about an hour, 15 to hour and a half episode for every three to four chapters of the book. Goblet of Fire has almost 40 chapters, so it has totally like rekindled the flame. I am like so excited. I feel immersed in this world and it's magical and it's wonderful and it's exciting and it's giving me ideas of things that I want to write about and just reminded me why I got into this. It's, it's taken me back to Eden, so to speak. Excellent. Excellent. Oh. Girls, choose a bunk and unpack. Ron, get out of the kitchen. We're all hungry. Yeah, get out of the kitchen, Ron. Feet off the table. Feet off the table. I love magic.
the Quidditch World Cup scene at the beginning is just fantastic. It seems like everything I've wanted a state fair to be in the I Love Magic scene where Harry is outside the tent and walks in and, and sees everything uh, completely furnished and way much bigger on the inside. I think that's a really sweet moment and reminds us that Harry is foreign to this world, right? We're four movies in now and he's a lot more familiar with the magical world, but he's still an outsider coming in. Whereas when we get to the later books, five, six, seven, uh, he's so deeply ingrained in that world that maybe a little bit of that wonder is lost. And uh, I just, I just love returning to that wonder. Yeah. There's a lot of that wonder. I think this is honestly one of the most fun of the movies, which is kind of peculiar given that it's sort of the turn from light to dark, you know, definitely, ministry politics the death of a student like we're maturing at a great speed one, one more point i think that this movie is the worst look for ron of any of the movies i think the other contender might be deathly hollows part one is this is this your number one ron hate movie or do you have another one yeah i don't know so on the podcast that we talked about the benjamin harry potter jason concepcion the co-host he many times throughout the series will say tough look for my guy ron weasley i mean he just thinks that this is like the lowest of the low for ron especially all the yule ball stuff certainly jealousy with harry over having his name be picked to be a champion in the triwizard tournament it's a tough look for ron i entered the harry potter world through the movies and i think that gave me less affection for ron than i would have had i entered through the books i think the people who really love the books have more affection for ron than sort of the people less familiar with the harry potter world who have only kind of seen a few movies and maybe that's going to come in later when we talk about Hermione and how much I love her as a as a Jesus figure. I'll, I'll just straight up say it right now. She's going to be my Jesus <laughs> we, award. Let's be honest. We knew it was coming. I gave it to her three for three. I'm going to bring you a different element of her character and characterization, but she's going to be the Jesus award. And, and yeah, so to come full circle, I think, Ron, it's, it's always a little bit of a tougher look in the movies and in the books. But yeah, here particularly, and probably the worst haircut oh, of them all. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely crazy town. Worst robes by far as well. I mean, tough look for our guy Ron. I do love know? the moment where his date, uh, the Patil twin, is like, are you going to ask me to dance or no? And he's like, no. <laughs> are you going to ask me to dance or not? No. You got to respect the honesty. You know, yeah, I do. I do. It's so, so, so angsty. So angsty. Yeah. It's an angsty movie. I mean, th- this feels like middle school. This feels like drama and comparison and uh, like... I-, I was wondering if if you'd go to the ball with me. Oh, Harry, uh, someone's <laughs> already asked me. I've said I'll go. Shout our guy Cedric. Already in there. Yeah, true. And Cedric, you know, the flag-flying Hufflepuff, if there ever was one, over all seven books. I am a big Hufflepuff stan. And this is really our best look probably in the whole series. There's a chapter in Deathly Hallows where the Hufflepuff house decides to stay and fight in the battle for Hogwarts. And there's a great speech from Ernie McMillan that kind of rallies the troops. But but really, Cedric is our poster boy. And, and this is a tough movie for us as a house. Mm. Sorry. That's my boy. Yeah, you hate to That's see those Potter Stinks badges. Yeah. I know. Well, I know. He's RIP. trying to get him not to wear them. You know, Cedric's a good guy. Yeah, he could have pushed a little harder. Well, we're actually going to talk about that a little later. So less spoilers on the coming awards and let's get to it. Graham, give me your Lazarus Award for the high key gospel moment of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. My Lazarus Award goes to Harry standing up to Voldemort in the graveyard. Don't you turn your back on me, Harry Potter. I want you to look at me when I kill you. I want to see the light leave your eyes. Have it your way. In the films and in the books as well, this is the first time that we get to see Harry face-to-face with the humanoid Voldemort. We've gotten him with Professor Quirrell, the sneaky Voldy on the back of his head. We've got Tom Riddle, uh, who is the apparition of uh, the Tom Riddle diary. We don't get any Voldy in Prisoner of Azkaban, but here we get Harry face-to-face with his mortal enemy. Uh, And it's a moment that Harry doesn't seek out for himself, but one that is thrust upon him against his will. And so the story that I kind of centered on, which is maybe one of the most overused biblical tropes in our modern culture, is David and Goliath. It says, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul, who's the king, replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. 
But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. We know how this ends, right? David takes out his slingshot, he wields it at Goliath, hits him in the forehead, topples, the Philistine army runs away and is trampled. And so while Harry does not end up killing Voldemort in this instance, he does have the courage to go out and face him. And let's be honest a little bit here about uh, the space for critique. Uh, I think it could be easily construed here that Harry has a lot of self-confidence or pride, or he's doing this uh, out of anger for what he has seen done to Cedric. Um, That's why Harry's choosing to convulse to confront Voldemort. But nonetheless, I think it's an important moment. And, and we talk a lot in this pod about the misconceptions of the David and Goliath story. Are we, David, the ones who are slaying the monstrous Goliath that is our sin? Tom Tog. Tom Tog. True of me, more true of God. The truth of that David and Goliath story is that uh, God is faithful through uh, David's choice to be faithful to him. And Jesus is the greater and true David who slays the Goliath of sin and death, which is, I think, a, a line I think I've stolen from you for, from some previous uh, podcasts. Think about the fact that nobody else is even willing to say Voldemort's name. They say, he who must not be named. Uh, but Harry cries out the name Voldemort uh, in defiance of him. And so for me, that's why this scene wins my Lazarus Award. Got it. Yeah. Chosen one vibes. Mm. The prophesied deliverer, but also the bringer about her of Voldemort. You know, Harry's blood running through Voldemort's veins, that's kind of an interesting parallel, too. No, totally. And when we think about the fact that God created every living thing, meaning that God created Lucifer, right? Like, Lucifer didn't just appear. Uh, And so even, like, the enemy has the blood of the creator. And we see Voldemort here reference his history with Harry, and we won't get into that fully, but he has this line, when Lily Potter gave her life for her only son, and I'm like, Voldy 316? Is, is that what we're doing here? Maybe some biblical parallels in that, but Kev, take me to your Lazarus Award. My Lazarus Award is much more upbeat. It is Voldemort's Resurrection. Oh, no way. It was love. You see, when dear sweet Lily Potter gave her life for her only son, she provided the ultimate protection. I could not touch him. It was old magic. Something I should have foreseen. But no matter, no matter, things have changed. I can touch you now. Astonishing what a few drops of your blood will do. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's this dark and disturbing scene might seem like the opposite of the gospel, and indeed it frankly is, but I'm picking it because it feels like the most biblically potent to me. The good news of Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice isn't needed without a truly horrific opponent, a problem that we humans cannot handle ourselves. Like you said, he's been dangerous as a spirit that corrupted Quirrell, a memory from an enchanted diary, but for the most part, kind of the villain of a backstory of how Harry got a scar and why he's an orphan living at the Dursleys. But you know, he's no longer a scary bedtime story silenced by Lily Potter's love. No, now Voldemort, I can touch you now. Mm. His power is not a history lesson. It is a crucio screaming chaos that will ruin everything good if not stopped. And Graham, I think this draws a compelling parallel to humanity's fall in the Garden of Eden, right? Paradise lost. So of course there's a setting, it takes place in a garden and the, more than that, the ancestral home of our key character. And of course there's a serpent, Nagini parallel, but also there's the fact that Voldemort's rise to life requires a bone taken from his father. And that kind of reminded me how Eve is sort of, uh, you know, raised to life through the transfer of a bone from Adam's rib. There's sort of like the bone needed for life. And then there's the gardener, muggle gardener, Frank Bryce is kind of this despised and rejected innocent who dies for the villain. So he kind of has like a subtle Jesus vibe thing going on. Um, So yeah, I think J.K. Rowling is very much aware of these parallels. But anyways, I want to look closely at the curse that God gives a few verses after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. 
that's forbidden. So here's Genesis 3, 14 through 19. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Dark stuff from the Bible here. This is the beginning of death and pain and suffering and grief. Another interesting parallel, Job 1, picking up at verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job really fear God for no reason? Have you not just put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. The idea here is like, there's this hedge of protection around job that is being lowered i'm imagining like the blue shields on mustafar in star wars revenge of the sith eh, eh, eh. shields <laughs> down shields down job is vulnerable job is so vulnerable and satan's about to literally rip apart everything that he has and that's the story of genesis 3 and humanity that's the story of voldemort and harry in the garden i can touch you now mm. but before we end on too dark of a note I'd like to show a little bit of redemption here, and this is why it's the Lazarus War, because there are blessings hidden within the curse. Listen to this really cool little nugget. This is when Harry's recounting the events to Dumbledore at the end of the book in his office. Harry says to Dumbledore, quote, He said my blood would make him stronger than if he'd used someone else's, Harry told Dumbledore. He said the protection my, my mother left in me, he'd have it too. And he was right. He could touch me without hurting himself. He touched my face. For a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. Dumbledore actually can see the end. He can see farther ahead than Harry in the story, and he knows that the blood that, of Harry that runs now in Voldemort's veins is going to come to have a future role in Voldemort's undoing. And you might think, that's great, that's Harry Potter, but where's that good news in the Bible? Well, let's go back to the curse and look at it a little more closely Centering on Genesis 3.15, this is a kind of a fancy theological term called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, the first good news. Notice that only the serpent is personally cursed. Verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, right? To the woman, it's childbearing, and to, the, to Adam, it's the ground will be cursed, but only the serpent is personally cursed. But the woman will bear the seed of Christ, enmity between Eve's seed, the line of Abel and Seth, and the serpent's seed, Cain. So there's going to be enmity between believers and non-believers promised here enmity between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel so who's this woman's offspring who's this he is jesus the christ he's going to bruise the head of the serpent he's going to kill the serpent it's going to come at the cost of a deadly snake by anyone in the ancient near east reading this would have known that a venomous snake's bite to the heel is fatal um, and so this is a promise that like Jesus is going to have to die to win. Um, but this is the first good news of the gospel. Entering the chat is the covenant of grace here. Mm. And so just as in Voldemort's rise to power in the graveyard, we sort of see traces, thanks to Dumbledore later in his office, that you know gleam in his eye. We have traces of grace coming even in Genesis 3. Whew. Hefty. Not what I thought I saw coming from you, Kev, with Voldemort. Yeah, I guess the big difference is like Harry doesn't make an active choice. You know, he doesn't give into temptation to bring Voldemort back. If anything, that would be like Wormtail, who interestingly is really, you know, against like in the book, he even like hopes that it doesn't work, that Voldemort won't rise out of the cauldron of white bubbling liquid, which is really interesting. Like that's how scared everybody is of him. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the kind of glaring difference between the stories. But the big similarity is that like what used to be a history book lesson is now a big time at large threat for the wizarding world. Everything is going to be ruined if this isn't stopped. We need a big savior for a big problem. Mm, yeah. And what's interesting is that the next film that follows Order of the Phoenix is a lot of Harry and people around Harry trying to convince other people that this threat is actually real, right? Because 
uh, a lot of the wizarding world seems to be in denial about the fact that Voldemort is back from the dead. It's not until uh, people see Voldemort in the Ministry of Magic at the end of Order of the Phoenix. It's not until they see and experience and taste that death for themselves that they recognize they need a savior. And so part of Harry's quote-unquote evangelism through the next film is telling everybody that this threat is real. Like, we live in a world that is under attack from a, a vicious and present enemy. Not good news. He's back. He's back. <laughs> Not for long. Take me to your Mary Magdalene Award for a low-key gospel moment in the Goblet of Fire. My Mary Magdalene Award goes to Dumbledore's eulogy for Cedric. While we may come from different places and speak in different tongues, our hearts beat as one. In light of recent events, the bonds of friendship we made this year will be more important than ever. Remember that. And Cedric Diggory will not have died in vain. You remember that. And we'll celebrate a boy who was kind and honest and brave and true right to the very end. And this is my pulpit pick. There's this great New York Times author named David Brooks, and I can't tell if I've referenced him before on the Jesus and Movies podcast, but I look up to him a lot. And he wrote this article in 2015. It's an Opinion Sunday article in the New York Times called The Moral Bucket List. Um, and in it, David Brooks explores this idea that there's certain people in his life who he feels like bring out the best in others. And one of the ways he differentiates these individuals from the rest of the society is by coming up with this concept of eulogy virtues and resume virtues. And so in this eulogy here that Dumbledore gives for the recently murdered Cedric, Dumbledore does an incredible job of underlining these eulogy virtues as opposed to the resume virtues, right? And it's not like Cedric is is not an accomplished individual, right? He's, he's a good-looking guy. He's well-liked. He has fought valiantly in the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, but listen to what Dumbledore says. He's a, he was a good and loyal friend. Uh, he was brave. He was kind. And really, biblically, we get a great basis for what friendship looks like. We see the line that Jesus says in uh, John 15, no greater love is this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. We got Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Galatians 6, 2, carry each other's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I think this is this is a life that Cedric lives, and the way that Dumbledore talks about him is eulogizing and lifting up these character standards as having high value. But later on in Dumbledore's eulogy, he goes on to talk about the importance of friendship, specifically the friendships that have been developed over the course of this past year. Bobadon. <laughs> and Durmstrang, <laughs> and obviously the students of Hogwarts. Even though these individuals uh, share different tongues and different schools and come from different countries, their hearts beat as one. And John writes here in Revelation 7-9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Dumbledore closes by saying, These bonds of friendship will be more important than other. And I think of 1 John 4-11 that says, quote, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. What a great command. And really, this eulogy is underscored by the final scene where Harry, Ron, and Hermione are hanging out, watching uh, the students from Bobaton leave. And Hermione goes, this is going to change everything, isn't it? Everything is going to change now, isn't it? Yes. I think Dumbledore highlights the important parts of the character of Cedric. He he lifts up these high values of friendship, of community, of the hope that this is really what the world is supposed to look like, the world coming together as one against a common cause. I think that's very gospel-centric, and that's why this wins my Mary Magdalene Award for a low-key gospel moment. Bow down. Bow down. Yeah, I like it. Eulogy values. My boy, Cedric, represent, put some respect on the Hufflepuff house, a fierce, fierce friend as Dumbledore says, is most important among his priorly listed attributes 
and not that we're sort of trying to live for the tombstone inscription or the eulogy, mm-hmm. right? Like our hope is in Jesus mm-hmm. having the perfect eulogy that can, you know, stand in the place of ours in a sense. That's the gospel. I'm um, with you. Bubba down. Bubba down. <laughs> All right, Kev, take me to your Mary Magdalene Award. Okay, so there's been a little bit of teasing about who's going to win the Jesus Award today. I kind of <laughs> threw my case for Hermione. Graham sort of said Harry. I'm kind of shocked neither of us are picking Dumbledore because I see he's probably the most objective in my opinion. But uh, I'm actually going to throw you a bone here, Graham. I'm going to throw uh, my Mary Magdalene uh, Award to Harry's ruined reputation for being the chosen one in the goblet scene. Oh. Harry Potter! Come on, Harry. Harry, for goodness sake. Harry kind of has that long walk between those narrow Hogwarts tables in the Great Hall after Harry Potter. Um, And Harry sort of has to walk past scowls and grimaces as he returns to his table. He is the chosen one and he is hated for it. And I just feel like this is kind of the Jesus story, right? So John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews, two big beefs here, Jesus breaking the Sabbath in this chapter. Jesus had just healed a man at the pool and they were on a Sunday and they were like, why do you do that? Why do you do that? It's the Sabbath day. He can't be healing anybody. But anyways, that's part one. Part two, Jesus is claiming that God's his father. I am fully God. I'm God's son. The Jews do not like that. And so I kind of see that same kind of twofold fault on Harry's part in the eyes of those at Hogwarts and Durmstrang and Bobaton. Like Harry broke the rules, you know, he is underaged. He should not be eligible to compete in the Triwizard Tournament. And two, why does he think he's the chosen one? So what? He's got a special scar. You know, he's the celebrity of our wizarding world. You know, he gets all the glory. And I think we're going to see that kind of sentiment from Ron here. Um, so that's my Mary Magdalene Award. I think he kind of has that long walk of shame. It sort of felt like the Garden of Gethsemane. Of course, the goat Hermione knew that he didn't put his name in the goblet. And she says, come on, Harry. Like, he's, he's got to go up there and get it. Because even Harry's shocked. Uh, which I guess is different from Jesus. Yeah, totally. When you are LeBron James and you tattoo Chosen One on your back, you have to put on for the entire city of Cleveland. Otherwise, your life's a failure. And oh boy, clearly that, false teaching. that's the gospel right there, right? <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure it's got to be lonely at the top for Harry in that moment. And it takes a special friend like Hermione to, to see him in the middle of that. Yes, sir. Moving on to the False Prophet Award. Give me a non-biblical argument that the Goblet of Fire makes. Well, Kev, this one is a little bit far-fetched because I found this movie pretty solid on a lot of fronts. Agree. But I'm going to say my False Prophet Award goes to escaping death as the ultimate good. And maybe this is a little bit premature because we know that in Deathly Hollows, spoiler alert, Harry is going to willingly walk into the arms of death. But this is this is not what we see here in Goblet of Fire. And so the verses I pulled... John 10, 14 through 18, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. And what we see from Jesus here is that he is a volunteer. He's not a victim. In the case of uh, Harry, he feels a lot more like a victim, which is why escaping death seems to be the ultimate good. My question for you. In Deathly Hallows, we are going to get the story of the three brothers. Mm. And the hero of that story is going to be the one who greets death as an old friend. Mm. Do you think J.K.R. has had a change of heart on death or are our characters just more mature by then i think they're more mature by then and the reality is this is a marker scene that exists to set up the ultimate final battle right i think this is an important step in harry's journey in order to get to to the end of book seven in the forbidden forest if the movie ended right here 
man, that would be a false prophet award for the ages. Um, yeah, it's definitely like an affirming critiquing balance, right? We don't want to avoid death at any and all costs like we saw, you know, maybe in Titanic Martian and others. I and mean, that's what Voldemort's doing, right? That's why Voldemort is... Right, but, yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's why he's the villain. But also, like, to greet death as an old friend presented as sort of like the benevolent alternative, there can be some sneaky false prophet there down the road if we make it to Deathly Hallows because... You know, Jesus died to conquer death. Like what we see in the garden pre-fall is that like humanity is intended to live forever without blemish or spot or wrinkle. Like we are permanent, infinite beings by design. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's part of what makes Middle Earth, you know, a world of half truths and wrongs and rights and spiritual warfare so unsatisfying. It's like we're clearly destined for something greater than this. So, yeah, there's, there's kind of like a critique maybe on both sides of the extremities of how to view death, I guess. All right, Kev. Take me to your false prophet award. All right, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't think it's that big of a thing, but I'm giving my false prophet award to moving on without explicit forgiveness. With teenage maturation comes raging hormones and terrible haircuts, and one of the unfortunate casualties of living in a constant state of insecurity is the speed at which a jealous thought can become a mean insult or a cold rejection of a person entirely. Harry never explicitly forgives Ron for relationally abandoning him. Hermione never explicitly forgives Ron for being mean at the Yule Ball. Harry and Ron never ask forgiveness for being inconsiderate dates at the Yule Ball. Harry, Ron, and Hermione apparently never came clean for uh, stealing Polyjuice potion materials from Snape's potion uh, closet back in Chamber of Secrets. Cedric apologizes to Harry about the Potter Stinks badges, but doesn't really make a real effort to stop his friends from wearing them. Moody doesn't apologize to Neville for humiliating him in class, even though he does invite him back up to his office. And in, I guess just like in nearly all of these instances, there's sort of like a partial reconciliation, like we're good now, but there's never really like a full like, hey, you wronged me and like, I forgive you. We're moving on now. Yeah. Like the essence of Christianity is getting honest about like, we have transgressions, we have sinned not only against others, but against God simultaneously. And like that, a payment has to be paid for that. Like there's been wrongdoing and it needs to be addressed. And I think a lot of uh, growth in our relationship with God looks like getting more honest about, you know, specific times and places when that's happening and, and getting to see God is bigger and bigger and bigger as he forgives deeper and deeper, you know, tranches of our sin. So I've got Colossians 3 here, 12 through 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, hashtag Harry Potter, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Very clear mandate here to forgive each other. And I would just add that part of Paul's invitation is not only to forgive other people, but to demand forgiveness yourself, to be honest with friends about how they've hurt you. Uh, Only then can we have, as Paul says, the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. I think the movie is better without these reconciliation moments, but I think if we're not careful, we're going to walk away from movies like this thinking like, oh, this is how it goes. Like we just, we don't talk to each other for a month because we're, you know, Ron's jealous and then we're back and we don't talk about it ever again. And I think Jesus is inviting us to uh, a level of honesty that's built on a foundation that we can uh, have these harder conversations because we know we're not going to lose our relationship with him. That's like the ultimate example of this. Yeah, no, I would agree with you because again, we talk about this movie being a tough look for our guy, Ron Weasley, but uh, his apology to Harry is incredibly half-hearted. I mean, this man straight up abandons him in his time of need. He won't talk to him. I mean, Ron owes Harry a serious apology, and, and Harry never really gets that. Again, right. they seem to kind of commiserate in their own, you know, loneliness and trying to find these dates. And again, we just move forward. I reckon you have to be barking mad to put your own name in the goblet of fire. Caught on, have you? Took you long enough? I wasn't the only one who thought you'd done it. Everyone was saying it behind your back. Brilliant. That makes me feel loads better. At least I warned you about the dragons. Hagrid warned me about the dragons. No, 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 I did. No, don't you remember? I told Hermione to tell you that Seamus told me that Bavardi told Dean that Hagrid was looking for you. That's completely mental. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? I suppose I was a bit distraught. And Ron kind of does the very human thing, which is what we all do. He sort of talks about how he, you know, I suppose I was a bit distraught, wasn't I? And then he kind of goes into this sort of resume type, like, but hey, at least I warned you about the dragons. Like, let me sort of, like, 
kind of get you to step into my shoes. This is where I was coming from. Let me sort of try to justify myself. And I think it does help kind of humanize him and, and helps Harry to see why maybe Ron was so jealous. But at the same time, when we talk about sin with God, you know, God understands that you like indulge that jealous thought and said something mean to that person because it's stemming from an insecurity that's real and that's honest about you. But at the same time, like you can sort of like lose the idea that you need forgiveness the more and more you try to justify why you did something. Mm, totally. So there's sort of an affirming critique there. Yeah, I, I'm with you there, 100%. Let's move on. Give me your Jesus Award for the most Christ-like character of Goblet of Fire. So my Jesus Award for Goblet of Fire goes to Harry. Goblet of Fire, I think, is the most solitary of the Harry Potter films thus far. We've got the Dumbledore line at the beginning of the Triwizard Tournament where he says, if chosen, you stand alone. And really, Harry does stand alone, right? We've got that instance when his name is pulled from the Goblet of Fire, and he has to go walk by himself um, up to the front of the Great Hall to get his name from Dumbledore. Um, We see how Harry waits in the tent alone in preparation for the Hungarian Horntail the second task, which is underwater, is, is Harry alone. Harry in the maze, it's Harry alone, right? And we know that Jesus had close friends, right? He had the three, Peter, James, and John. He had the 12, his 12 disciples. But um, even in the moments where he was most suffering, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he was alone. His friends wouldn't stay up awake with him. Uh, when he went to the cross, he went there alone. And yet, in being alone... Jesus still chooses to be unselfish in every instance, right? He goes to the cross for the sake of humanity. In each of the different tasks and just throughout this movie, Harry demonstrates that level of Christ-like selflessness, right? He's the one who informs Cedric uh, about the the dragons being for the first task, right? He is the one who chooses to save uh, Ron and Gabrielle, Fleur's sister, in the second task underwater. He is the one who goes back for Cedric when he's tripped up by roots in the maze, uh, and he's the one who agrees to grab the Triwizard Cup with Cedric. Again, does it together. He's the one who uh, chooses to grant Cedric's wish wish by bringing him back to his father. Harry is unselfish here in in a Christ-like way, um, and he's also the champion of her death, right? He's the champion of the Triwizard Tournament. He's the one who escapes the grasps of Voldemort, and while he has not yet conquered it, um, he is victorious over death. And so Philippians 2, 3 through 4, this is Paul's command to the church of Philippi. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And I think essential in that is that Harry didn't choose to put his name into the Goblet of Fire. It was thrust upon him. I didn't put my name in that cup. I don't want eternal glory. I just want to be... Look, I don't know what happened tonight, and I don't know why. It just did. When Harry says... I don't want eternal glory. I just want to be dot, dot, dot. And he doesn't answer it. And we're sort of left thinking he said, he's going to say to Ron, like, I just want to be normal, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of what he's mm-hmm. thinking. Is Jesus like that or no? Well, it seems like Jesus's core motivation is bringing glory to the Father, right? With whom he is is deeply united. And so I don't think that Jesus wants to be normal. I do think that Jesus wants to be with the Father and that this death and humiliation that he's going to face is going to inhibit that, at least for a period of time, right? So I think Jesus could be Harry in that instance in that he doesn't want to do the hard thing because it's hard, but he does the hard thing because it's good and because it's right. Yeah. There's also kind of a Jesus-like moment in the maze where he sort of has that, and the movie does it too, right, where he sort of can see down the hedge funnel, the cup, Mm. all the glory, all the money, all the women, you know, whatever it is. I guess they're girls. Cho Chang. Cho Chang, you know. And, and that note, but actually Cho Chang, though, because Cedric invites her to the Yule Ball. Yep. And Harry's like, of course. Yep. Like, Cedric would get her. Yep. Um, and, like, this is his chance. Like, he and Cedric, you know, Crumb already got got and Fleur already got got. It's the two of them left. And, like, he has that choice. Remember, he sort of looks at the cup like, oh, you know, I didn't enter the contest, but it, it would be kind of nice. It'd be kind of nice to win. Nice. But then he sort of looks back and rescues Cedric and... Even Cedric says, like, you know, for a minute there, I thought, you know, you weren't going to rescue me. Thanks. No problem. You know, for a moment there, I thought you, you were going to let it get me. For a moment, so did I. So there's sort of an interesting parallel. I guess I was thinking about Jesus, like, on the mountaintop being tempted by Satan. Like, 
I can give you all of this. Like you can be a great hero and maybe even Satan kind of tempting Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his betrayal. Like, like he's having those thoughts, right? Like, am I sure I'm going to do this? I really don't want to die. He's sweating blood. He's so nervous, but Jesus like overcomes the temptation, right? Like that's how we can have this empathizing. God can relate to us because he's, he's seen our temptations and he's overcome them. Harry kind of overcomes that big temptation in the hedge third task there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Kev, the moment we've all been waiting for, take me to your Jesus Award for Goblet of Fire. Well, I'm pretty sure it's the moment that only I have been waiting for, but I have (laughs) been maybe subconsciously waiting for this moment for a while because, you know, this is like my entrance, not only the Harry Potter and like, like storytelling, like this is like, this changed me from an economics major to an English major at Davidson. Instead of, you know, maybe doing something money related in Charlotte, now I'm like off with a hundred to one email reply ratio with these LA contacts because of Harry and Hermione. Like this is the start of it all for me. It's so magical and so precious to me. Um, I've told you before, like I watch this great video, 101 Harry and Hermione moments on YouTube every now and then to remind myself of like, you know, what God is like to me um, and why I fell in love with storytelling to begin with. How does it feel, Harry? We, we can do this. My best friend is Muggle. She's the best in our year. Better? Right. Everything's going to change now, isn't it? Yes. I don't really think you're going to be able to find all those Horcruxes by yourself, do you? And Harry, just be careful. I'm Hermione Granger. You'll be okay, Harry. Maybe we should just stay here, Harry. Grow old. I'll go with you. So yes, Hermione Granger (laughs) is my Jesus Award winner. I am going to rattle off a lot of moments here in my pulpit pick. Here we go. First to check in on Harry after his bad dream. Only one to keep track of Harry during the Death Eater attack at the World Cup. She's the only one who pushes Harry to ask Sirius for help about the games and his dreams. Stops Moody's harassing of Neville. Is the only one to check in on him after class. The only one not to celebrate Fred and George's attempted rule-breaking of Dumbledore's age line for the Goblet, although she was admittedly a little bit arrogant in doing so, at least in the movie. One of the only ones to believe Harry didn't put his name in the Goblet of Fire, to quote the book, Harry told Hermione exactly what had happened after he left the Gryffindor table the night before. To his immense relief, Hermione accepted his story without question. Generously mediates between Harry and Ron when they're not talking. Pavati told Dean to ask Neville to... (laughs) Ask how Harry's feeling about the dragon test, then gives him an epic hug that launches an unfortunate Rita Skeeter article, hashtag Animagus, jumps higher than anyone else when celebrating Harry's dragon victory, doesn't get self-absorbed when invited by stud Victor Crumb, as they say on Binge Mode, Victor Dick, uh, to the Yule Ball, gets honest about her own life and pushes Harry to get honest about his lack of progress on the second task. Uh, and this is probably a top three scene here. We're going to play the clip. You are trying to figure this egg out, aren't you? What's that supposed to mean? Just means these tasks are designed to test you. In the most brutal way, they're almost cruel. And, um... Cared for you. Sees the best in Harry at the lake. This is probably my number one. I almost gave it the Mary Magdalene Award, but I figured I needed to throw a little bit of love elsewhere. Harry! Hermione! Ow! Are you right? You must be freezing! Personally, I think you behaved admirably. I finished last of Ivy. Ah! Next to last. Flan have got Vazi Grandilos. She is able to sort of articulate, I think, what all of us feel pretty deeply, which is that nobody really understands why I do the things that I do. And I feel like I'm not getting enough points from the judges. Harry could have won that second challenge, right? Like he was the first one there, but because he showed quote, outstanding moral fiber, uh, he spends all this time trying to rescue the hostages that weren't his. And he ends up losing to Cedric. Um, and he gets some points for it, which Igor Karkaroff did not like. Classic Death Eater. It's only Hermione that's really able to kind of look and say, like, at least in the movie, they really jump it up. Like, hey, like, I'm really proud of you. I know what you did. I see you. 
um, even when those don't, and even when the world seems to only recognize who finishes first place. She's the one to articulate my Lazarus Award that everything's going to change now, isn't it? And you talked about that. And it's so funny, on the Binge Mode Harry Potter episode where they talk about movie adaptation, they hated that line. They were sort of like, of course we have to say it because it's a movie, it's so obvious, la 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 la. I really like that line. I think that that's like a nice kind of period to the sentence that is Goblet of Fire. I think it sets us up for what's to come. And I think it really puts words to what we're all feeling, which is, wow, that just happened. Like Anakin just became Darth Vader. The rest is different now. Yeah. She shows her affection for Harry and Ron by asking to write over the summer. Uh, That's the last one. That is the literal end of the movie. So Hermione's doing two big things over and over and over, I think. I think she's sort of encouraging and affirming Harry, kind of walking alongside him. And then she's also kind of challenging him, sort of pushing him to be a better version and and really just to keep him safe, honestly, in a lot of these instances. So let's go part one, part two. Encouraging. Checking in on him, telling him she's proud of him, giving him big jumps in victory and tight hugs in defeat, always having his back. Job 614. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Hermione withholds no kindness from Harry, in my opinion. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I kind of like that at the end, just as you are doing. Like, I feel like Hermione has been doing this over and over and over, but uh, as Christians, we can grow weary of doing this, right? And so Paul's encouragement to the church at Thessalonica, encourage one another, build one another up just as you've been doing. I think Hermione continues to do that challenging and pushing him she pushes him to put his pride or his curiosities aside and go to dumbledore and sirius for help especially in the books pushing him to reconcile with ron to work harder at unriddling and also preparing for his goblet tasks so to not procrastinate on that egg the second task and then also to you know work on his charms for the third task it can almost feel abrasive when she's sort of like harry like come on get it together And I'm not sure that we always think of God that way, or maybe we only think of God that way and we don't think of the former, but nevertheless, this side is here. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And we kind of see that contrast between Hermione and Moody. Like maybe Moody's the the guy who's like, better than fair, I've heard. Like you're a great flyer, Harry. Like you're so good. You're so good. I'm going to help you win. Mm -hmm. But like he's actually the lurking enemy, right? These are kisses from an enemy. Hermione's over here saying, you got to get it together. Like we got to figure out what this egg is and what the second task is going to be so that you can win. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, even when it feels like she's sort of weighing on him. She has his best interest at heart. And so I think these two together, I'm kind of funneling it down from like, so I gave you like a million examples and then I narrowed it down to two, encouraging and challenging. And now we're going to boil those two down to one. Drum roll, please. Patience. I think that Hermione is so patient with Harry. She's patient with his past that she can't fully relate to. She's patient with his inclination to suspect and even at, at times accuse Snape. She's patient with his hatred and at times wrongdoing towards the Malfoy and the Slytherins. She's patient with his procrastinating on the egg, patient with his uncertainty surrounding how his name was drawn from the goblet, patient with his grief over watching Cedric's murder. Though always three steps ahead, she's willing to let him take his time, bearing each burden with him step by step. What was the first verse that you read for your Mary Magdalene about bearing each other's burdens? Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. I think she slam dunks that. I think she bears his burdens even though they're not hers. And even though she's always just so far ahead of him. Um, And so all of this has been like, you know, pretty middle of the road. This could be a normal Jesus award in some ways. But now I'm going to throw you my pulpit pick layer to it. A lot of times I think we think of friendship as each person sort of brings something meaningful to the table. And we kind of each learn from the other. And we sort of meet in the middle, you know, maybe like 21 Jump Street. I'm going to give you two examples that are kind of musical. It's sort of been on my mind lately. Galinda and Elphaba in Wicked, which Graham and I went to go see together. <laughs> Listen to these lyrics from one of the most popular songs, For Good. I've heard it said that people come into our lives for a reason, bringing something we must learn, and we are led to those. Who help us most grow if we let them and we help them in return well I don't know if I believe that's true but I know I'm who I am today because I knew you The stream that meets a boulder, 
Who can say if I've been changed for the better, but because I know you, I've been changed for good. There's kind of this idea that like Alphabet gets a little bit more socially savvy and like um, maybe articulate or expressive or upbeat because of her experiences with Glinda. And maybe Glinda gets a little bit more mature and a little bit more truthful and honest from her experiences with Alphaba. And so they sort of each kind of benefit from each other, right? And then let's kick the ball down the road to Hamilton. You could kind of say something similar between Hamilton and Burr. Hamilton faces an Hamilton doesn't hesitate. He exhibits no restraint. He takes and he takes and he takes and he keeps on winning anyway. He changes the game. He plays and he raises the stakes. There's kind of this idea that like, even as Hamilton is going to learn from Burr, Graham, what's the line that Burr gives Hamilton in that kind of opening interaction between them? Yeah, uh, talk less, yes. smile more, don't let them know what you're what against, you're against or what, you're what you're for. Yeah, yeah, so I think there's kind of this idea that like Hamilton is going to be really resistant to that idea, but he's sort of going to learn like when to lean into that more and when to lean into it less as the story goes on. And I think you could argue maybe a little bit less so, but Burr is going to kind of learn to shoot his shot as Hamilton does a little bit more and more, especially in the end in tragic fashion. But like, I think the idea is the same with Glinda and Elphaba. Like they're going to kind of learn the best side of each other and incorporate those elements into their arsenal. And so here's where it's my pulpit pick. I think Harry and Hermione are not like this. I think that Harry learns a lot and is really benefited from Hermione's relationship, but Hermione really doesn't have much growing to do from her relationship with Harry. I just feel like Hermione is literally better than Harry at everything except for flying, and he, she doesn't really need to become a better flyer. That sounds like a bad thing, but this is actually more representative of the relationship that we have with God. We don't meet him in the middle. He comes all the way down to us. Go back to Genesis 3 and the curse, total depravity. Only three chapters later, God is going to say this. Uh, before bringing on the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. If that's not total depravity, I don't know what is. And so what can we do in response to such you know, overwhelming opposition? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. By grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Not even our faith is of our own doing. It is a gift of God. God brings grace. He, he slaughters Jesus on the cross. And then he generously opens the eyes of our hearts, gives us the faith to believe in his own son. God is doing everything for us like can't you see that in the bible um and so that's kind of how i see harry and hermione like i just don't really know that hermione is better by harry i think she's just patient time and time again with him interesting so i think so much to be affirmed there um i would push back against the fact that harry doesn't do anything for hermione people forget that she was i guess if she was technically saved by victor crumb but he was trying to save her while she was underwater echoing back to Chamber of Secrets when Hermione is petrified by the Basilisk and uh, Harry plays an essential role in defeating the Basilisk and, and bringing about Hermione's saving. And so, you know, we, when we think about that great reunion we get at, in the Great Hall at the end of Chamber of Secrets, um, and there's the reality that in some ways everybody's fate is tied to Harry's fate, right? True. He is the savior of this wizarding world. And so if Harry goes down, they all go down. Um, maybe Harry and Harry and Ron definitely take a little bit of Hermione's edge off, right? She's this high level perfectionist that True. wants to achieve and, and do everything. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, there's a lot to be affirmed. It's interesting. I thought you were going to reference one more scene in relation to Hermione as the Jesus figure. And that's the... Hermione walking down the stairs to the Yule Ball moment, mm. uh, which is really Hermione's coming out party as a love interest to Ron and to other characters, including Victor Crumb. But hey, Hermione, uh, your girl, your girl. That's like her first girl <laughs> moment, right? <laughs> exactly. She looks beautiful. Yeah, she does. 
don't know, that, that was a really beautiful moment, at least in my eyes, you know, if we're thinking about her as the Jesus figure, the just being viewed in, in all their beauty for who, for who she is. So, yeah, I think it, it really does inspire me to be more patient with those around me. Like, I think sometimes I think of patience as like waiting in line with a good attitude. Yeah. <laughs> like a time thing. But I think what we see in the gospels, the way Jesus's patient works is he, he's not offended by the disciples' bad questions. He's willing to sort of have the same elementary conversations over and over. I guess I think that's what kind of the great mentors in my life have done with me, my parents included, is sort of like tolerate me at my worst mm-hmm. and sort of trust the process, I guess, that like maturation will come, especially if it's, you know, God promised. I think especially like RUF at Davidson kind of had that effect. People were very patient with me and like over time the seed grew, but it just takes a while. And I think sometimes in ministry we expect results overnight. And I know that, you know, I wasn't a result overnight by any means. And I guess it gives me encouragement to sort of be that way with those around me. I think a lot of times I, if I get a meal with someone, I'm sort of hoping that like we can unpack the the mysteries of scripture in, in an hour and boom, they're going to leave a totally new person. But the reality is like most of ministry looks like pouring water on soil that's just brown and hasn't moved. Mm-hmm. And you're just sort of like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like yep, yep. just seems so like fruitless, literally fruitless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Hermione kind of has that patience with Harry. Like, is he ever going to learn, you know, to give Snape the benefit of the doubt or to sort of trust Dumbledore and serious experience and wisdom over his own, you know, predilections? Is he ever going to learn to, you know, get on top of his stuff and stop procrastinating to take his homework seriously? Is he ever going to learn to open up about his feelings and to actually be honest and to let himself grieve and his parents? Or is he going to try to bottle up away story after story? You know, I think she's just like, she always has the right answer, but she's never like furious with him you know i mean i guess she's mad at him at times but Mm. i'm talking too much yeah any final thoughts on that if hermione gets a bad rap for anything in the series it's through being maybe a little bit self-righteous and acting like she has all of the Mm -hmm. answers which you know maybe she does have a lot of the right answers but i think in some ways delivery is almost as important as the truth itself right like more even more important than the things we do are how we do them and so I do think there's there's patience demonstrated in here, and I think there's there's room for her. I just don't think that Hermione is a finished product, and I don't think any of us are finished products. I agree with that, and I'm going to let you have the final word. Listeners, be thinking of who jumps off the screen of the page as most Christ-like to you in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And in the meantime, on to our guest. And this week we have my friend Seth as our guest. Seth, how are you doing, man? Doing great. Happy to be here, Kev. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days. Well, I'm uh, living currently in Davidson, North Carolina, and I go to church with Kevin Ashley. That's how we know each other. <clears throat> I've been to a few Bible studies and men's groups together. Big fan of the pod and uh, just kind of invited myself on and saw if I could you know, get on to hang out with you guys for a bit. And he said, yes. So here I am. Well, we're happy to have you. Share with us one way you've seen the gospel or truth in something you've watched lately. For me, I told you guys actually already at church the other day, it was in Dune, which is a great movie. I, I loved it. I, I would give it probably a solid nine out of 10. It gave my wife a panic attack because it was just like <laughs> constant dread and gloom and the bass just like it got keep, kept turning up. But that was great. Anyways, there's just one specific line that I was kind of looking at and it's an exchange between Paul, Timothy, Chalamet, and uh, his dad, Leto, the Duke of the House of Atreides. Uh, played by Oscar Isaacs. I want you sitting in on my council. Learn what I do. What if I'm not dead? Not what? The future of House Atreides. Your grandfather said, a great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. And he answers. And if your answer is no, You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. He's kind of struggling with like, you know, identity as the Duke's son and like heavy hangs the head that wears the crown kind of ideas. He's, nobody wants to be the Duke or he's cut out for it. And I think the, the thing that I really got from it was, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be my son. And that to me got to me because I felt like oftentimes I have these great aspirations. And I think we all do. And that's okay. You know, have these big plans for our lives and what we're going to do with it. And like, we're going to be in 
five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50. And I think sometimes I get so confused about like, what do I want from me? And what does God want from me? I often tend to turn God into just a puppet God, where he just, he just wants what I want, you know, and we're always on the same page. And so what that made me think of was two verses, but one was from Romans 8, 15, for you have not received a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received uh, the spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Sonship. There you go, Kev. First John 3, 1. And it says, and this is kind of a fun one, because I feel like John sometimes just seems stoked to be here, you know? Like Paul seems like, ah, but John's usually just like, man, this is great. He says, how great is the love the Father's lavished on us that we should be called children of God, exclamation point. And that is what we are, exclamation point. I think that's kind of cool. Because I think it's easy to get caught up in like the Christian call and like ministry and like calling. And, but I, I do think oftentimes I get, I forget the fact that like from all of that flows this firm identity in the fact that I am God's son, you know, or like, you know, we are God's children, sons and daughters. And he sees us as that first and foremost, and nothing can change that. Whether like, we, like, we fail at being the Duke of the House of Atreides or, you know, Thomas Merton, yeah, it's like a monk. Sure. Yeah, yeah. He wrote a book called A New Seeds of Contemplation. And he says in it, <clears throat> talking about people um, who are addicted to doing things and doing a lot of things and staying busy, I'm very guilty of that. He says, blinded by their desire for ceaseless motion, for a constant sense of achievement, famished with a crude hunger for results, for visible and tangible success, they, we, work themselves into a state in which they cannot believe that they are pleasing God unless they're busy with a dozen jobs at the same time. So I guess the question, and this is a question on a point, um, in our daily lives, what are we living like? Sons or slaves? And what does God require of us first and foremost? Does God require anything of us? And if it is, and he does, what is it, you know? And where do we start throwing our own ideas of what, what we need to be in? Awesome. Well, Seth, thank you so much for that. I think of Jesus really uh, being anointed as God's son before he goes out and does ministry. And so, you know, we get the scene in the Gospels where he's baptized and God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And how that forms the basis of Jesus's ministry before he goes out and performs, you know, all these miracles and ultimately the sacrifice of the cross. And, and with the example that you gave specifically of Paul Atreides, like it is sonship that informs his action, not action that informs his sonship. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It reminds me of Ephesians 2.10, I believe. Like, we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That we are first God's masterpiece, but we, they were first are his beloved before we are called to do good works. Yeah, another thing that I think makes that moment powerful in Dune, there's not a ton of, like, father-son setup, I guess. So it really feels like a curveball in the moment. It'd be one thing if it was, like, the Lion King, you know, where like the whole question is like, is Simba going to become the next Mufasa? Like, will he fill daddy's footsteps? But like, I, I guess I didn't really feel that with the Atreides dynamic until that moment. Then it was like, oh, there is this compelling father-son piece. I totally agree. You're absolutely right. It felt more like, like the premise of the whole thing wasn't this idea. It wasn't like sonship, right? That's not what like Dune is about. I don't think I'm going to be a tough book yeah. to make for sure. It's about like galactic conflict and politics and i just feel like that for me like you said was jarring and it stood out because it was kind of like whoa that's kind of weird you know but i think also it just it did it it the tenderness between them i think was 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 all the more i think poignant because of the backdrop of just like despair and darkness and warfare yeah it felt like it very much countered his relationship with his mother it seems like she's the one who's kind of journeying with him, maybe preparing a little bit more of this path, and the one who who kind of journeys with him through most of the mission. With well, a norm for like father son relationships in movies, I think is complicated. You know, like I think it's just like it's weird to have tenderness there. I think we're used to seeing like mother son relationships with tenderness and stuff. But you're right, you kind of flip the script where it's like the mom is pretty harsh. Like I think she obviously loves Paul and stuff, but she's pretty mm -hmm. brutal. Um, and the dad, there's this real fondness and affection. I think that's a great point. And especially in these kind of big fantasy epic, like chosen one type narratives, which Paul, I, I would argue is very much filling. Very rarely do you have like a stable parental relationship, right? Like look at Harry Potter, XX, look at Lord of the Rings, like Frodo doesn't have, you know, 
parents by his side as he journeys to Mordor. Look at Luke Skywalker. Like, his journey doesn't begin until his parents are turned into crisps and Tatooine. Like, there's there's a reason that we root for characters who are orphans and grieving the loss of their parents, but uh, it does feel very different. And I guess, you know, the pieces ultimately get put in place for Paul's journey for part two. Yeah. But yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Seth. That was awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Seth. Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there, but before we close, here's a quick shout-out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Samantha Armas, Kelly Barkley, Courtney Kristen Craig, and Heather Carlock, Tanner Carlson, Gabe Doherty, Jake Derizio, Ben Dunbar, Thomas Eldridge, Rebecca Entwistle, woot woot. William Harwood, Graham Jane and Ken Hooten, Taylor Huffman, Hunter Keys, Maggie King, Daniel Lee, Bess McLawhorn, John Pabone, Scott Pahachik, Logan Russell, Andy Simmons, Will Smith, Kim Streamer, Helen Webster, Clay Young. Thank you all so much for your support. Information about our podcast can be found on our Instagram at Jesus and Movies. But for $1 a month, $1 a month, you can get our weekly updates of Vote Towards Movie Picks, shoutouts on the podcast, features on our Instagram, and an invite for you and a plus one to the Jimmys by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Movies or on the free Patreon app. Please write us at jesusandmovies at gmail.com. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple, give us a review and let us know what you think. That helps us to learn more about what's working and what isn't, as well as to reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that even though Satan, sin, and death have entered the world and everything's going to change now, isn't it? Jesus is the true and greater chosen one who by loving sacrifice had defeated, is defeating, and will one day finally defeat death by dying and rising again. And we'll see you next month.